I'm going to turn off my video. Cool. Um, and I'll let you guys take it away. Perfect. Um, so firstly, uh, welcome. I'm Charlotte Black, uh, Senior Strategy Director at Saffron, and um, it's my absolute pleasure to have with me today Eric Foe, who's the co-founder of Citizen Wolf. Um, and maybe Eric, if you want to introduce yourself very briefly, and then I can chat about why we're here today. Sure. Um, once again, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Eric. Um, I run a brand called Citizen Wolf, uh, which is a fashion brand, even though my background is not fashion. Um, I started off in advertising, of all things, um, many, many moons ago. And after a while, decided that there was a lot more to life than trying to sell things to people that they didn't need and trying to convince people to consume more. So I had a bit of a, a crisis of conscience moment and decided to spend uh, a fair few years of my life instead using my marketing skills to reduce demand, uh, working with organizations like WWF and the Wildlife Conservation Society to try and get people to consume less things, particularly when it comes to endangered um, animals. Uh, then about five, six years ago, I met up with a friend of mine who was also from advertising called Zoltan. And we had a chat about fashion because that was what he was working on at the time. And the more we talked about it, the more we thought there's something, there's something intrinsically wrong with the fashion industry that everyone just ignores. The, the amount of waste that's generated and someone should do something about it. And we were stupid and foolish enough to think that we were the ones who could mm -hmm. do something about it. So five, six years later, here we are. Fantastic. And that's exactly what we're here to talk about today. So we, um, uh, of course, featured you in our recent report on ESG and, and the influence and impact um, it should be having on the customer experience journey. And um, for those of you who haven't downloaded our report yet, please do. There's some great insights about how um, brands and businesses can really live up to their ESG commitments through the customer journey. Um, and I guess that's my first question to you to get started. Obviously, retail is a really tricky industry when it comes to these topics. You know, if we think about supply chain, we think about waste, we think about uh, cultural and, and human impact. Um, how have you ensured that you've built a business that is really conscious and committed to um, ESG topics from the inside and out? So from the very start, we wanted to make sure that the business that we were building was going to contribute a solution rather than contribute to the problems that were endemic in the fashion industry, which meant the basic principles that we started from um, were we want to make things as locally as possible to try and reduce the supply chain complexities and the environmental uh, footprint. We wanted to make things on demand rather than mass production because the whole business model of fashion is built on 30% mm. waste just being factored in, which to us just seemed ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to make sure that it was going to be an experience which made it great for customers as well. So to get rid of mm -hmm. a lot of the frustrations around uh, people unable to find the right fit, because mm -hmm. for example, I'm really short. I really struggle mm -hmm. to get anything that makes me fit properly without going to the kids section. Mm -hmm. um, and it just seemed ridiculous that you could get a tailored suit pretty much anywhere in the world, uh, in any corner, there'll be a tailor. But for the stuff we actually wear 95% of the time, you had to mm -hmm. sell for uh, some, some 
generic sizing, which wasn't even mm-hmm. consistent within the same brand, let mm-hmm. alone across different brands. Um, so for us, we knew we had to just unbreak the model or think about how to do fashion from the ground up. And it helps mm-hmm. that we didn't know anything about fashion. So we didn't mm-hmm. have a lot of preconceived yeah. notions. Um, and as a result, we've been able to make sure that as we grow, the right foundations for ensuring an ethical and sustainable business uh, was baked in from day one. Fantastic. And um, what are a couple of examples of, of how you've done that? Maybe I, I really like your point around you hadn't worked in retail before. So were there a couple of ways that you could completely reimagine the process and not kind of be constrained by the, the typical, quite traditional um, models? Are there a couple of examples you could share with us? Yep. So for us, uh, the most fundamental part of our business is what we call magic fit. Mm-hmm. It's an algorithm that we developed that allows us to work out an individual's body shape just by knowing a few basic details, such as your height, your weight, or date of birth, um, and for women, uh, bra size as well. Mm-hmm. And for us, it's crucial because it means that we can eliminate all the guesswork that forces the current fashion industry to, to work in a way that is only in small, medium, and large. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so rather than trying to make things easy from a production perspective and basically push that burden of, uh, of trying to find the right fit to the customer, um, we thought, actually, it makes no sense. Let's reverse that. Let's build a system where the customer comes first, where the first principle from us is to make sure that we can have the right fit in the right style and the right fabric, and the right color, uh, and then we'll just work out how to make that happen. And so that was one example of, of just rethinking the, the system. Yeah, amazing. So maybe I could ask you, you know, if what would be your tips for maybe companies that have not had the benefit of starting from scratch and, and seeing, you know, the mistakes made by others? What would be your, your tips for maybe companies that are trying to become more conscious um, and, and make a bigger impact and, and more positive change, as you said, um, to the environment and, and the world we live in. Are there any tips you could share? Yeah, I'd definitely say the most important thing is just to start somewhere. Mm-hmm. So reflecting on the back on the journey that, that we've had, um, it's very easy for us to say that we knew all of this from day one and that it was all going to work out and mm-hmm. it was going to be amazing. Um, the reality is that we didn't um, and mm-hmm. we learned an enormous amount along the way and a lot of things that we thought were great when we first started just aren't. Um, and on reflection, they were pretty terrible decisions. But by starting and doing and learning, uh, we at least have something to build on, to refine and course correct and improve over time. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, when we started, we were looking at a whole range of materials which we thought were great, like bamboo. But mm-hmm. the more we look at it and understand how it's actually made, the more we realize actually it's not that great. Right. And having a principle of how do we just constantly improve over time and how do we ensure that our impact on the environment is positive for each decision we make. Um, you know, we've, we've slowly changed our, our fabric mix to make sure that it is, um, you know, organic cotton or hemp uh, mm-hmm. and 100% natural, et cetera, that mm-hmm. uh, you know, we get over time. I guess that's the, the positive and the uh, negative parts of being a disruptor if you've got to learn those hard lessons yourselves as well because no one else has done it before so uh, exactly and I, I think uh, there's a perception that you have to do things perfect all the time 
Mm. Uh, we'll be the first to admit that we're far from perfect, uh, mm-hmm. but by just constantly trying to achieve better, uh, mm-hmm. every month we can see progress uh, to be better and better and better. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So I mentioned at the beginning that um, a lot of the work we've been looking at is how ESG kind of impacts throughout the customer journey. I was wondering from your perspective, um, where you see the kind of, um, where it's been really impactful on the customer to to talk about your commitments to, I know it's throughout your business, but where maybe you dial it up um, on, on from an ESG perspective and maybe, areas that it's more, maybe less impactful or also more of a struggle potentially. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the, the kind of moments on the customer journey and where you think it has the biggest impact? Um, well, that's, that's a tricky question because for us, it's so embedded in our business. And I, yeah. think, I think the difference between how we approach ESG versus some other companies is that for us, it's not just some marketing speak. And mm-hmm. I think that inauthenticity, if you were to mm-hmm. just slap an organic cotton logo on something and call it a day, um, consumers are increasingly picking up on that. Mm-hmm. And it means that you're looking at it very much from a marketing perspective as opposed to, is this something that you intrinsically believe in? And is, is this something that is a guide star for the decision-making for everything in your business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if it's that easy for us to disentangle. Yeah. Um, well, what I would say though, is that we definitely see it as a net positive. Um, mm-hmm. We tend to post things which can be quite controversial. You know, we get customer feedback saying stick to making t-shirts and stop worrying about the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the, the companies I used to work for in advertising was called, D, uh, it was called DDB. And mm-hmm. one of the founders there was, uh, was famous for a quote, which is, it's not a principle until it costs you money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you stand for something, uh, you'll find people who are for you uh, and people who are against you. Right? Mm-hmm. But if you don't stand for anything, you won't find anyone against you, but you also won't find anyone for you. So Absolutely. with those two ideas in mind, we very much believe we should be articulating all the time the things that we believe in to be on the right side of history, but mm-hmm. also bring along the right types of customers uh, to our business who want to be part of that journey with us. And hopefully by doing so, build up more and more of a movement um, over time. Mm. Yeah, and you're building a fantastic community that really will be your best advocates and supporters. And as you innovate and, and I guess, develop more products and maybe diversify or whatever, they will go with you on that journey. So it's, yeah, it's a fantastic approach. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit um, again about the kind of retail industry. And we know that one of the kind of the the balance that retailers are often up against is, um, you know, strong commitments to sustainability because that's what society demands now, which is fantastic. But we also know that society is very much about getting what they want when they want it. And, you know, the kind of um, Amazon expectation where you can get anything within an hour type thing. Um, I was wondering how you balance this kind of, um, you know, immediacy and the impacts on the environment from the logistical perspective 
with your commitments and everything you've you've just shared about that. Yeah, um, I think that we found a fairly uh, interesting space uh, in, in the market in that our customers don't actually expect things instantly and we don't set that expectation. Mm -hmm. um, the types of clothing or style that, that we go for are very much evergreen classics, things which mm -hmm. always stay in style as opposed to the thing that you saw on the runway last week and you must have today. Mm -hmm. um, so as a result, we, we, I guess, attract people who are much more into the, the slow fashion movement rather mm -hmm. than the fast fashion movement. Over time, we'd like to convert a lot more of the fast fashion people into the benefits of slow fashion, um, but it's for us, it's still quite early days. Um, as a result, we also get some interesting paradoxes. Um, if we send out a perfectly tailored garment to you within 24 hours, uh, the immediate reaction from our customers is that that's fake. There's something wrong with it. There's no way that you could have worked out everything and made it within 24 hours. So by slowing it down a little bit more, it actually becomes more believable. And that anticipation of getting something perfect uh, has actually been working more in our favor than, than trying to make something uh, immediately available. I think that's a really interesting point about, you know, you're setting expectations if you do that right from the offset, but also there's actually more value in kind of the, the, um, the waiting process. But I imagine there's also, there's lots you can do in that, those moments, right? You can build um, connections with your customers. You can create great content that brings them along that journey and makes them feel part of something. And maybe actually, I don't know, but maybe that allows you to also price differently because they're able to put a greater, they think they're getting something. It's kind of the new luxury in, in many ways where you know, you're actually having to wait. Um, and in a way it's full circle of a kind of couture movement you know, where people have to wait for, for months for, for their clothes and things. So I think it's a, a really nice philosophy and obviously quite impactful from the, the results you've had. Um, I was just going to move now to thinking about, you know, some other brands as well. And we know that lots of companies obviously are making big commitments, making big splashes. You, you, you said it yourself about, you know, putting badges here and there and, and, and how deep does it actually go? Um, you know, how, um, uh, you know, how committed do brands have to go do you think to be able to actually have um a authentic sustainability um cause you know do they have to go full in or you know is a toe in the water okay but that's not that authentic It'd be interesting to hear because obviously not there are many fast fashion brands out there um mm. and many brands that haven't had the opportunity to build the ground up like you have how do you think they can kind of find this balance I think that any movement towards being more sustainable and being more ethical in how they work throughout the supply chain uh, is definitely welcomed. It's certainly better than ignoring the problem or just not doing anything. Having said that, what really frustrates us is when they do the barest minimum and then declare themselves to be a sustainable brand. Mm -hmm. right, so there are many fast fashion, particularly big players out there, Right, who have suddenly switched one range, right, in one line in, in their entire 80,000 SKU range into an organic cotton 
mix or a recycled polyester mix. And suddenly, you know, that's, that's their commitment to sustainability. It completely mm-hmm. ignores how that clothing was made. The business model, which makes 30% of clothing unsold um, and go straight to landfill uh, mm-hmm. as a result. And another third being worn less than five times before it's discarded because it's just the way fast fashion works. Mm-hmm. Until they do something to seriously address those issues, we don't believe they have credibility. Mm-hmm. That's, again, not to say that they can't have credibility, but they need to show genuine movement towards it and not just lip service or just um, scratching the surface and you know, considering the job done and continuing to do business as usual mm-hmm. uh, in a very unsustainable way. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's very clear. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit um, about the role of employees as well in, in terms of, you know, um, working within a sustainable brand, but also representing a sustainable brand. And I think there's been quite a few cases over the last couple of, maybe not so much in retail, but, you know, across the board where maybe businesses have said they have strong ESG commitments, but actually when you just scrape the surface, they've got some quite big cultural challenges. So I was wondering what you do at, at um, Citizen Wolf to, um I guess, you know, engage your employees, but also, you know, um, make them a really big part of um, what you're trying to achieve. So for for us, it starts at the hiring process. The people that we do hire do share the same beliefs and values that we do. So that already helps us tremendously with that culture. And one of the strong benefits that that we've seen um, being so I guess, vocal about our own ECG commitments is that we get people who are very committed who want to, to, to be part of that journey with us, which is fantastic. Mm. The second thing we do is that we are very transparent internally about how we work. So every week uh, or every Monday, we have a weekly meeting where we pretty much take our staff through everything, right? through mm. the sales, through what we've done from an ESG perspective, to uh, how our audit processes have gone with Ethical Clothing Australia or B Corp or what it may be. Um, and we invite them to also provide their input as well. Mm-hmm. So that way, it's not just us um, as the, the co-founders saying, this is the way things must be, but we're inviting all our staff to not just contribute to the ideas, but also critique what we're doing and let us know what we could be doing better. Mm-hmm. So really, it's all about transparency and, and ownership as well, I, I would imagine. Um, Very much yeah. so. I think, I think it only works is uh, if, as I said earlier, as a management team, you fundamentally mm-hmm. believe these things and yeah. actually apply to every facet of the business. But secondly, you're also empowering people who share those same values within the organisation to also contribute and build on those ideas to make it even more powerful. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, Talking of leadership, actually, um, another question that I wanted to ask you was about, um, again, thinking of if brands are trying to, um, you know, move much more in the direction that you are in and and authentically deliver on, um, you know, a conscious commitment, um, what sort of KPIs should brands be looking at and be reporting on to ensure they're not just kind of skin deep, as you know, I was saying previously, um, 
becoming a sustainable brand, but really, you know, having this positive impact and and shifting their business in a real impactful way? Yeah, um, I think it's a challenging question because different types of businesses are going to have different metrics. Mm-hmm. Even with fashion, depending on where in the value chain you sit, it could be very, very different. Um, if you're a, you know, if you're a giant uh, vertically integrated multinational corporation, it's all nice and well for your corporate HQ to be carbon neutral. But mm-hmm. if your emissions, uh, 90% of them are in the supply chain and you do zero about it, it's somewhat yeah. meaningless. Yeah. Um, this is where we found the B Corp accreditation process to actually be very, very helpful mm-hmm. because you get to benchmark yourself against the best sustainable companies around the world. Mm-hmm. And for us, it wasn't so much about just getting the, the accreditation, but using that as a way to learn what we as a business can be doing better across multiple facets. And from there, working out, well, what are appropriate KPIs? Should it be based mm-hmm. on water or should it be based on resource reduction or should it be based on carbon emissions? Um, and the beauty of it is that you can work out what works for you mm-hmm. and you don't have to tackle everything at, the, at, at once. You can choose one thing, do it well, get it right, And then once that's done, move on to the next thing. And again, over time, improve your business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. I I think it's um, because I know historically, you know, the supply chain has been a real issue in terms of exactly what you were saying. A company can report that they're doing all of these fantastic things, but actually because they're working with a lot of third parties that are not being overseen and are not held accountable to the same standards, it's very hard to actually track the full impact of, of their uh, production, et cetera. Um, your business, do you own all of your, your kind of supply? Well, obviously not your suppliers, but how, how do you manage that relationship to make sure that you know, you're able to really authentically say, we understand where absolutely everything is coming from and we are committed to make sure, you know, the whether it's the material or, or the environments that people are working in is up to what we expect. How, how do you manage that? So um, starting at the, I guess, the most intimate level, um, we made a very decision, early decision to actually create and own our own factory so that we can control the quality, we can control the conditions that people are working in, and that we can make sure that at least that first level um, is exactly as it should be. And we go through an annual Ethical Clothing Australia accreditation process where they come in, inspect the factory, make sure that we're compliant with all the health and safety requirements. They audit our books to make sure that everyone's being paid fairly uh, and that they were not working uh, the wrong hours. Uh, and that gives both ourselves uh, and our customers a level of comfort that, that at that level at least, things mm-hmm. are, um, are as they should be. The next level is then going into our suppliers. We unfortunately don't own our fabric mills yet. Okay. Um, so we have chosen partners who can at least provide accreditation and proof that they are also mm-hmm. doing the right things. Mm-hmm. Right? So things like um, our, the mill that we work with in Melbourne uh, a local supplier has got uh, certification of things like um, uh, the, um, the organic cotton standards, uh, responsible wool standards, which have a chain of custody so that you know exactly which farm this particular wool mm-hmm. came from, how it was processed, who's touched it, what's happened to it. Um, so we exclusively work with suppliers where we can trust right, that, that system. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we also only work with reputable suppliers, so we're not we're not uh, working with random organisations mm-hmm. that get in contact yeah. with us and say we can offer you an extra special deal on cotton this week. Uh, it is people that we've had relationships with for five years now. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, so you're, it's it's built up there. They're kind of an extension of your team, I would imagine, in in some cases. Um, exactly. I was just going to. Uh, you know, maybe um, unless there's something else that I haven't asked you that maybe you want to share as well. But I wanted to talk uh, finally just broader in terms of what's coming next in retail and and innovations. It, it sounds as really, you know, you've built your business model off, you know, some fantastic innovations. And I was wondering if there's anything within um, the retail space that you think is coming through in the next, you know, five years is that you think is really going to disrupt um, you know how people consume um, uh, clothes and, and retail in general but specifically how it's going to positively contribute to you know um, everything we've dis- discussed around ESG yeah um, I, I'd say that and this may be very very biased but the problem that we're tackling um, of overproduction is actually going to be one of the the biggest changes uh, because it is the it is the reason why fashion as an industry uh, is one of the worst polluters on the planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's why, according to the World Bank and the Ellen MacArthur um, Foundation, mm-hmm. that the carbon emissions from fashion is going to rise 50% this decade right? Wow. and another 300% by 2050. It's because we produce far more clothing than we need because the business model, uh, at the, as it stands, is that the cheapest way to make things is to make them in bulk, and hope that they sell at the best possible margin, right? And you do it at such a price that you can afford to throw out and make a lot So what we think is that with the rise of technology and with the rise of better manufacturing, that old industrial era style uh, production mentality is gonna give way to on-demand production where things will only be made when there's an actual need for it and when a customer actually wants it in that right spec. So we think we're at the forefront of that, but what we're seeing is a lot of big brands starting to come in and play that game as well. Uh, Ralph Lauren, uh, have, Polo have just said that they're going to move to a model where their Polo shirts are going to be colored on demand um, in store rather than oh, okay. them having to work out yeah. 12 months in advance what colors are going to sell. Um, Amazon have also started doing clothing made on demand and for them it's about how to reduce return rates for e-commerce which mm-hmm. can be as high as 50 percent mm-hmm. um, which means not only is that clothing uh, thrown away if it gets returned because it's not resellable but all the carbon emissions from transport right just adds to that to that way so yeah. if they can eliminate yeah. even even 50 percent of that uh, return pro- uh, problem it's a huge economic and environmental uh, boost Mm. Oh, fantastic yeah I think those those kind of areas about how do you tackle the actual transport side of the retail model is huge um and and I guess there's also there's a re-education point as well of you know should you be ordering 20 versions of of everything versus it's actually I, I really like your model you know there's much more time and effort spent on to is this the thing I actually want I've constructed it, it's tailored to me versus, you know, proper fast fashion where it's just, 
you know, I'll order 20 things and see two things that stick, which is, um, yeah, a, a really challenging area, I think, for what people have become accustomed to. Um, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you finally, um, just if there, obviously, you're really leading the charge in this space. Are there any um, other retailers that you look to as, you know, setting a new standard and um, are inspiring you on, on a daily basis? Um, well, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, there's certainly quite a lot of brands that, that we admire, all for very, very different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of the, the brands that uh, we've followed quite closely uh, and have grown with is Outland Denim, for example, here in Australia, mm-hmm. where their business model is built around uh, you helping uh, women uh, in Cambodia, in, in this particular instance, mm-hmm. to escape uh, human trafficking mm-hmm. and to be provided a career uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in garment manufacturing. So they actually have a livelihood um, oh, yeah. And their whole business model is built around supporting that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Unspun uh, out in the States who are basically doing the similar thing to, to us, who, uh, but they're applying it to denim. Oh, um, okay. So it's, they two are also looking at how do they bring in this future of on-demand production um, yeah. you know, to the reality. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, there's quite a few, I think, interesting brands Generally, in the, in the more uh, startup space, who yeah. are trying to innovate and do things differently, um, what we're seeing, what we encountered at the start and what we do see is that a lot of established brands are so used to doing things a certain way um, that they're like, the, like, like a 90,000 tonne ship. It's, they're just, it's very, very hard for them to manoeuvre uh, yeah. and change the way they work. Yeah. I guess that's why a lot of them will you see trying to in some way maybe acquiring you know you're saying a lot of this innovation is happening in the startup space and then you can see you know for example someone like Farfetch I think a lot of their their model is about investing in in the latest technology in the different startups and acquiring that technology and then integrating it into their model and I think that's probably a way, you know, they're, they're actually quite a young company in comparison to some of the, the older ones, but I guess that's a faster way for big corporations anyway to, to move at pace versus um, just trying to build it um, from scratch internally. So, yeah, I guess there's lots of different models that companies can explore to try and um, get ahead. And I guess the good thing is that at least these conversations are happening, companies like yourselves are really uh, leading the way and and hopefully, um, you know, consumer taste will continue to drive this, um, but also hopefully um, the innovation will be there to make it happen even faster. Um, so yeah, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to share with us today um, um, that I haven't I'd, asked I'd... you. Yeah, I'd just like to, I guess, pick up a bit further from that the last thing you said. I think uh, a large part of what we need to do as businesses as well is to provide a reason beyond just the environment or beyond ethics um, to, to change the way that they can consume. Um, and I, I say that because everyone wants to do the right thing. If you look at any survey and you ask people, would you spend more to... To, to protect the environment. And everyone says yes. 
Um, but when it comes to the actual act of, okay, will you put money on the table to, to prove it? Most of them will drop out, right? And yeah. they say, oh, no, 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 actually prices is quite important. Um, so for us, our Trojan horse, as it were, was that we will make sure that it's tailor-fitted to you. And if, if yeah. you were responsible um, for the creation of the item, you decided what the neckline should be. It's your favorite color. It fits you perfectly. You'll love it more, which means you'll care about it more, which means that you'll wear it more often, which is better for the environment. And when it gets to a point where it's damaged, you'll want it repaired rather than throw it out right, and buy whatever the next shiny thing is. Mm -hmm. um, so for us, it's about creating those reasons to buy, mm -hmm. which go beyond just the environment. But the, long, the end result of it is that we are getting people who otherwise wouldn't be um, our customers right, to mm -hmm. at least get to start on that journey and over time right, become the types of uh, environmentally conscious uh, consumers that we want them to be. Absolutely. I think that's a super important point. You know, you've still got to have a very clear value proposition of why, you know, um, a customer should be, you know, a, one of your customers and, and the, um, the kind of environmental impact should be a hygiene factor that is an outcome of them enjoying their product, them coming to you versus a competitor and um, all of those good things. So I think, yeah, there's a really um, important point to make to ensure, you know, what we were talking about right at the beginning, that all of the conversations and the actions based on, on the environment or, you know, broader conscious topics are not just for that end, but are that as well as um, a, a solid customer value proposition, because otherwise, you know, it does just sit in that kind of a typical corporate social responsibility space that actually isn't shifting industries, isn't shifting consumer behavior. Um, and I think that's a, a really valuable point to kind of finish this conversation on. So thank you so much. Um, it's been really fascinating to talk to you. So thanks for sharing your time with us. No worries. Thank you for uh, having me. It's been fantastic to, to chat with you. So I'm hoping Zara is going <laughs> to...